Well, I'd invite you to turn with me in your Bibles uh, for the last time this evening to John 17. We've spent the last three sermons looking at John 17 together, last two Sunday mornings and last Sunday evening. And we will conclude our time in this wonderful prayer of Christ's this evening, just looking at a couple uh, features of Christ's prayer again for His people. Children, if you grabbed one of the red ESV children's Bibles, you can find this on page 1329. And I'm going to be reading verses 18 through the end of the chapter. This is the Word of God. Please take heed how you hear it. John 17, beginning in verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Now, you may be familiar with the uh, 4th, 5th century church father, St. Augustine, I was recently informed, uh, you know, the difference between St. Augustine and St. Augustine is, St. Augustine is in heaven and St. Augustine is in Florida. (laughs) St. Augustine's mother, Monica, you perhaps know this story, she prayed faithfully for her wayward son for 17 years on her knees every day before the Lord praying for her son's salvation praying against the sins he was committing and the lifestyle he had chosen, and asking God to be merciful to her son, Augustine. She even followed him across northern Africa and Europe to be near her son as she prayed for him. And many of you, I imagine, are in the midst of your Monica years, aren't you? Praying faithfully for someone that you love, asking the Lord to be merciful to them as he's been merciful to you. Others in this room, I can imagine, have been on the receiving end of a Monica's prayers, a faithful person in your life who interceded on your behalf for days and weeks and months, stretching on into years and perhaps even decades, that you might come to faith in the one true living God. How sweet and precious are the prayers of the saints who love us, aren't they? And I'm sure that many of you, uh, perhaps given enough prompting, would be compelled to go home and think deeply uh, and longingly for those who have lifted you up before the Lord for many years. If Monica's prayer for her son, Augustine, was so precious to him, how much more precious must Christ's prayer be for us? Christ prays for you, you know that? 
This is not a generic prayer he offers in John 17. He prays specifically for you. Now, we've been uh, sort of dragging the implications out of his intercessory prayer, especially this morning in verses 6 through 19. But I want you to notice very quickly before we really get into the text, verse 20. Jesus says this, I do not ask for these only, speaking of those disciples who are in his immediate presence, those who had followed him along his earthly journey, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now, if you're a Christian here this evening, that prayer that Jesus offered 2,000 years ago on the eve of his crucifixion was for you. Now, Michael W. Smith gets a lot of grief for saying that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he only had me in mind. But there is some truth to the fact that as he prayed his earthly prayer here in the garden, or prior to going to the garden, that Jesus himself was thinking of those who would have faith in him through the word of his apostles. Isn't that comforting to know that Jesus' prayer is for you? Well, this evening, we're going to be answering the question, Uh, Based on this final paragraph of Jesus' prayer in John 17, what is my purpose in God's economy? What is my purpose in God's economy? Or maybe we'll say it this way, what's my Christ-given mission in the world? Jesus prays some very specific things in the end of John chapter 17 that I want to draw our attention to. Just three observations from this closing paragraph that will seek to answer the question, what is my place, my purpose in God's economy? Number one, we see in verses 18 through 20 that we are sent with a mission of reconciliation. Ask what your purpose is. Christ answers, you have a mission of reconciliation. Number two, in verses 21 to 25, we have been sent with a unity of purpose. God intends for his people to look a certain way, and the word that he uses to describe that is unity. And then finally, in verse 26, we are sent with the love of a triune God. And maybe better, we're sent in the love of a triune God. Well, first, let's look at uh, our first point, that we're sent with a mission of reconciliation. Verses 18 Uh, through 20, Jesus says, as you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. James Montgomery Boyce remarks that mission is one of the marks of a true church. Now, of course, we understand, and Boyce would have certainly agreed with the Reformed position that there are three marks of the true church, uh, the right preaching of the Word, biblical preaching of the Word, the right administration of the sacraments, and church discipline, everyone's favorite mark of the true church. But really, the church can't be a true church if we're not exercising church discipline. That's another sermon. Boyce makes a good point, however, doesn't he, in suggesting that a mark of Christ's church is a church on mission. It's the same point that Paul makes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Why don't you turn there with me just very briefly. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul, starting in verse 17, very famous passage you know well, I'm sure. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself 
and then gave us something. What did he give us? The ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And then Paul even explains what that sounds like. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God, and so on and so forth. Paul is saying the same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that we are on a mission. We've been given a message, and it's a message of reconciliation. And this raises two questions for us in answer to our, our first question, what's my place in God's economy? What is the mission, and where is the field of operation, or the mission field? Well, the mission, of course, as we've seen in 2 Corinthians 5, is proclaiming reconciliation. It's declaring to lost souls the good news of Jesus Christ, teaching them who he is, where he came from, what he came to do, and in fact, what he did. And we saw, we've seen all of this just in John 17. Who he is is in verses 1 through 5. He is the eternal Son of God, shared glory with the Father from before the world began. He came to bring eternal life to all whom had been given to him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And he accomplished this work. He says in verse 4, I have glorified you, having accomplished the work that you sent me to do. That's the message. That's what we're sent into the world to preach, to proclaim, teaching them who he is and ultimately everything that he has commanded. And we see that again in Matthew 28, don't we, in the so-called Great Commission. In other words, this mission given to the church by Christ means that the church is intended by God to be an evangelistic organism. The church is intended by God to be evangelistic. One of its major responsibilities is to proclaim Christ, one of the marks if we follow uh, James Montgomery Boyce's outline. Yes, the church exists for worship. When we gather together Lord's Day by Lord's Day, morning and evening, we gather to worship God. But worship itself is an evangelistic thing. As those who don't know Christ gather among us, it's intended that they would see the power of the gospel at work among us and declare, surely God is in this place. John Piper, of course, remarks that mission exists because worship doesn't. In other words, the evangelistic mission given to the church is to go into all the places and into all the hearts in the world where worship isn't occurring, that those people in those places might join their hearts in union with ours before the throne of God. And so the church is meant to be an evangelistic organism. Now you may be thinking to yourself, does this mean that all of the church's ministries are to be evangelistically focused? For example, should sermons all contain a gospel proclamation? Should our ladies' groups all break from their uh, Bible study time to go out in town and do street evangelism with people? Well, maybe. I think there's a part of that that's true. In fact, our sermons do have a gospel proclamation, uh, and many of our ministries have an outward flavor to them. That's not exactly what Jesus is praying for here. Maybe you wonder, does this mean that we should support foreign missions? That part of our budget should be designated uh, as funds to send to folks and to send folks to parts of the world 
with the gospel. And of course, that's also true. And I would say that we should rejoice in the reality that those things are true here at Christ Covenant Church, aren't they? That we have evangelistically flavored sermons and ministries, that we do support foreign missions and so forth. But what it really means in this context, and stay with me here, what it really means in Jesus' prayer in verses 18 through 20 is given to us, the answer is given to us in verse 18. Look at what he says. As you have sent me into the world, so I sent them into the world. The mission field that we've been given, while of course global, is really local. There's an across-the-world connotation here, but the the into-the-world idea that Jesus repeats twice there in verse 18 ought to catch our attention. You remember, Jesus doesn't pray that we'd be removed from the world, but that we'd be preserved while we remain in it. He himself is leaving and going back to the Father, but we're left here in the world, in the midst of the world, in the place where God has planted us. That's why Jesus prayed back in verse 17 that we would be set apart from the world, that it would have no influence over us even while we remain in it. That's why he asked that we would be preserved from the evil one, that we wouldn't be overcome with the evil of the world, but would rather overcome evil with good, being marked as those Jesus prays for in Matthew chapter 5, that others would see our good deeds done in the world and give glory to our Father in heaven. To paraphrase uh, someone else's brilliant explanation of this, it means that we are called by Christ not to become an evangelical ghetto, not developing our own language and our own customs and our own inwardly focused relationships to the point that God becomes obscured from the view of the world and the church becomes irrelevant to her needs. Unfortunately, that's what a lot of Christians want, isn't it? That's what a lot of Christians want. You've heard me use the phrase fortress church before. If we could just, let's, let's put aside the current building plan, the heritage of worship plan, and let's reallocate those monies for a big old moat. And we could put a drawbridge at the front and you'd need to give an answer to a gospel question before you could come in. Now that's not Christ's covenant church's perspective, but there are a lot of churches out there who functionally exist like that, don't they? And maybe you've been a part of one before. That we just want to huddle together, worship facing each other, and then come back again next Sunday. And whatever happens between Sunday evening at the close of worship and next Sunday morning at the beginning, well, that's just separate. That's not what Jesus calls us to here and what he prays for. As one commentator said, we live in a day and age where it would be easy to be born into a Christian home, to go to a Christian school, To only ever read Christian books, to be entertained by Christian movies, to have nothing but Christian friends, to go to a Christian church, be employed in a Christian vocation, marry a Christian person, grow old and die in a Christian nursing home, and be buried in a Christian cemetery by a Christian undertaker. What a sad commentary on the state of things in many of the minds of Christian people in our day and age. Now, I'm not... I'm not speaking ill about any of those things in particular, Christian education, Christian worship, Christian homes, Christian marriage, or any of those things. 
The point is simply that we often adopt a posture of self-preservation when Jesus prays in John chapter 17 that God would be the one that preserves us while we remain in the world, doesn't he? Our thinking ought to be shaped by Jesus' prayer here in John 17. So let me ask you the question, what does your bubble look like? What does your bubble look like? Is your bubble uniformly Christian? In other words, is everything about your life so sanitized from the world that at the end of your life, not a single non-Christian could claim to have ever interacted with you? at least in a meaningful way. You know, if you expel from your bubble everyone that doesn't subscribe to the regulative principle of worship and fully subscribe to the doctrines of grace, you'll never evangelize a single soul, will you? And yet Christ commissions us, sends us into the world in the way that he was sent to proclaim reconciliation to those who need to hear it. And this is not the only place that Scripture affirms this mission, is it? Later in John chapter 20, he'll say the same thing to the apostles, I've sent you this way. In Matthew 28, in the so-called Great Commission, Jesus tells them to go out into the world, making disciples and teaching and baptizing them. And in Acts chapter 1, immediately before his ascension, he says much the same thing. Now to do this, to evangelize the world the way that Jesus was sent, requires that we look like Christ, doesn't it? He prays for that back in verse 17, set them apart by the truth because your word is truth. And he's going to explain in more detail in the coming verses what he means by that. Let me just give you an illustration. And I feel comfortable saying this if you'll understand why here in a moment. Uh, No one wants to go to an orthodontist whose teeth never touch, do they? You don't want to go to an orthodontist who looks like they floss with chain, right? You understand what I mean? You want to go to somebody who looks like they know what they're doing and have applied the practice that they're going to apply to your life. No one wants to go to a personal trainer at a gym who looks like they've never stepped foot on a treadmill before. And the same is true for the Christian evangelist. No one wants to hear a message of reconciliation or hear about a religion of supposed joy and peace being marketed by people who are full of bitterness and strife, do they? No one's buying what we're selling if we look exactly like the world looks. I wonder how we're supposed to tell people about the joy that's to be found in Christ when for many of us the creases of smiles never cross our face and the sounds of praise never exit our lips. That's what we'd be called to do, isn't it, in the way that Jesus was sent into the world. We're meant to proclaim the excellencies of God And so I'll ask you this, when was the last time you shared the gospel? Does that make you nervous? The idea of walking up to a total stranger and sharing the gospel with them? It doesn't have to be that, does it? It doesn't have to be a total stranger on the street. Many of you have relatives, blood relatives, or close neighbors that you know well from the neighborhood that you have wonderful opportunity through friendship to share the gospel with, both in deed and in word. But I'll tell you, I had a recent experience that was really impactful on me. A couple weeks ago, I was up in Philadelphia and spent several hours on a Thursday afternoon in downtown Philadelphia doing street evangelism, something I hadn't done in a long time, shamefully long time. 
And it was so encouraging that God went before those of us that were doing this and prepared the hearts of people to engage and have these wonderful interactions about worldview and about God's sovereignty and about his holiness and justice and about salvation. And it was really quite amazing to see how people from all over the world think about God as creator and them as created and to share the only hope that we have, which is Jesus Christ. When was the last time you shared the gospel? You might be surprised at what God will do, not in the heart of the person with whom you share it, but in your own heart when you do. Well, Jesus sent his disciples, and by extension us, into the world with a mission and a mission field. And he also sends us with a purpose in which we are to be united together before a watching world. We're sent with unity of purpose If the church's mission is to be successful, it must demonstrate to the world what the outcome of this message of reconciliation looks like in real life, doesn't it? Pay attention to this. He says repeatedly in this text that he wants us to be one, that we may be one, that they may be perfectly one all throughout verses 21 through 25. But there's a reason for this unity, It's not unity for the sake of getting together and getting along with one another, as wonderful as that may be. He says that he wants them to be one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. You see, our evangelistic mission is dependent on the unity that we display in the Christian church. In other words, the unity that we display in the Christian church is a sort of horizontal parable of the vertical peace that's meant to be brought about by the reconciliation with God in Christ Jesus. There's a horizontal example here being lived out in the view of a watching world, and it's meant to draw other people's attention to the vertical reality of the gospel. Paul in Romans chapter 5 tells us that we've been reconciled, been given peace with God through the blood of Jesus Christ our Lord. And yet we proclaim this peace while not living at peace with one another, don't we? What a shame to our witness and to the reputation of Christ that that's the way we present ourselves before the world. Paul tells the Ephesian believers that they've been brought together by Christ, who is himself their peace. That the dividing walls of hostility have been torn down in Christ. In Colossians, he says that there is no Jew or Greek circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but we're all one in Christ. That's the unity that Jesus prays for within his church. And don't miss this, there's a corporate identity going on here, isn't there? This isn't really a you and Jesus in your Bible go out and, and share the gospel, although that's something that we ought to do. But there's a corporate identity being uh, drawn to the surface here in this text as he speaks about our unity together is something the world sees. You can't really be united by yourself, can you? That's unilateral, not united. We need to be together with one another in order to live out all of the one another commands that the New Testament compels us to follow. Rather than an individualistic version of Christianity, Christ envisions a church on mission together, in unity together, unity of purpose and of belief. And there's a real sense in which this prayer has already been fulfilled, isn't there? There's a spiritual sense in which this prayer has been fulfilled. Every person 
who is in Christ has been united to him and by extension to one another. That's why the Bible uses these metaphors of family and body and so forth. We are united in Christ together, like it or not sometimes. But how do we live that out tangibly in front of the world who's watching us? That's the question. And so for us here at Christ Covenant Church, I ask us, is this true of us here? Is unity one of the marks of Christ Covenant Church? When people walk through these doors, what do they experience and see and know about us? This is a real diagnostic question. It's not meant to be uh, condemning or even necessarily convicting, but just diagnostic. As we think about our own relationships with one another, our own experiences with one another, our own love for one another, which we'll get to here in a moment, would people who came in here think of us as united? Would they look around and see people from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different socioeconomic statuses, different desires and interests and loves, all united in one voice, worshiping God and sharing the gospel with others? Or do you think we look more like a social club where everybody's about the same because we all like the same sports team every Sunday afternoon? Anybody can do that. If, if you've traveled around the country, you'll know <clears throat> there are really two teams that have managed to infiltrate every city in the continent of North America, and that's the Steelers and the Cowboys. They're everywhere. Everywhere. Even in my own home. <clears throat> but that's what the world does. That's not what Jesus is praying for his people, that we would have unity behind a, a, a common affiliation, but that we would have real, true unity in Christ together, that we would love the same gospel and proclaim the same gospel and exercise our lives together in the same mission. What about when people walk through the doors of your house? Do they see that sort of unity in your own lives, that sort of peace and unity that Jesus prays for here? Well, perhaps you struggle to think of how you could possibly have unity with so-and-so. You fill in the blank of who that person might be in your life. I'm sure I'm that person for many people. Perhaps people here. <clears throat> how could I possibly have unity with that person? Maybe they rub you in such the wrong way that you just can't imagine having peace with them or being united in purpose, much less love together. Well, let me let you in on a little practice that has helped me think better about this dilemma. All you need to do is take a brief look inside your own heart and see how just, an, how just ugly a person that God can love. And it helps tremendously when you look around at other people that you find difficult to love. Maybe you've experienced that yourself. You know, <clears throat> Paul, is not, Paul is not particularly aiming for the church in Ephesus to become unhealthily introspective, but he certainly spends a good deal of time reminding them of just how sinful and lost they were before Christ. And it's not because he wants them to lament all the time and become unhealthily introspective and bemoan all of their past sins as if they haven't really been forgiven. It's because he wants them to remember just how far God has brought them in Christ so that they would never look at somebody else and think there's no way God can do that for them. All I need to do is look in my own heart 
to be reminded just how ugly a sinner God can show love to. And if he's united me to Christ, and he's called me to be united with other believers, well then, with man, it might be impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And Paul encourages this in Ephesians 4, doesn't he? To bear with one another. And I always like to remind myself and others, you are everybody else's one another. As the church, as a church united, we're like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle, aren't we? Each piece is unique. It's cut differently. It bears a different imprint on its front. But when joined together, it images Christ to the world. And that's who we're supposed to be as the church. We've been given an evangelistic mission and a mission field. And we've been given a purpose in doing it. That's unity. But unity without love is mere uniformity. We need more than just an agreed upon mission. We need to share in the same kind of love that our triune God shares within himself. Think about this language uh, that's throughout these verses. He says in verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, that God loves us even as you loved me, Jesus says. Jump down to verse 26. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Jesus concludes his prayer for his people by reminding the Father of their shared Trinitarian love which he desires to share with us. When was the last time that you meditated for a moment on the love of God? Now, hold on a second. I don't mean God's love shown to us in sending his son to die for our sins, although that alone ought to drive us to our knees or up to our feet, one or the other, right? Thinking about God's love for us in Christ Jesus ought to drive us to our knees in humble adoration or stand us up on our feet in exuberant praise, one or the other. I'm talking about the love of God in God himself. When was the last time you contemplated God's self-contained, self-existent, self-blessed love that he shares within his triune Godhead and has for all eternity? That the Father loves the Son perfectly, And the Son loves the Spirit perfectly. And the Spirit loves the Father and the Son. And the Father, the Spirit, and the Son, the Father. All perfectly. Never out of sync with one another. Never divided in His perfect will and intention. Never broken in His relationship or fellowship. Always perfectly loving. And out of the abundance of that love creating all things for his own glory that the father might glorify the son and the spirit who glorifies the son and the father and the son who glorifies the father by sending the spirit so all creation might bow down one day in humble adoration before the god who loves himself so perfectly that he redeemed wretched sinners like us for his own glory that love that he has always perfectly had within himself 
never needing anything, never absent any drop of affection or love or adoration or praise or any such thing, Jesus prays to God, I want that for them. Wow. That's how much God loves us. And he expresses that to us on the cross, doesn't he? God so loving the world, those wretched, sinful rebels who had in their unrighteousness, in our unrighteousness, suppressed the truth about God for a lie and replaced the creator with created things for worship. Those of us all guilty of one part of the law, violators of all of it, hating others and being hated by others, full of anger and malice and envy and strife and dissensions, running headlong away from God straight towards hell. God loved us that much that he sent his only son who had perfectly and eternally ever existed with him in absolute blessedness into this world to die for our sins. When was the last time you thought about that love that God has for you. Christian, I don't know what you're going through. I look around and I do know what many of you are going through. And I hope that you know that myself and Pastor Stewart and the elders here pray for you daily. It's our great privilege to do so, to lift you up before the Lord. And we love doing it each Lord's Day in the pastoral prayer. And we do it on the Lord's Day morning before many of you are even awake as we gather on the phone to pray for you. And we do it in our homes and in our beds and our studies and when we're driving in our cars to pray for you and to lift you up that you might experience the love of God in Christ Jesus. And the prayers of saints for other saints are very precious and important, even like Monica's prayer for her son. How much more encouraging should you feel, encouraged should you feel, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, prayed that you would share in his triune love with God the Father. What a great comfort, whatever it is you're going through. And this sounds very much like it could be stamped under the inside of a Hallmark card, and for that I don't apologize. Jesus loves you and has from all eternity. So much so that he bled and died to pay for your sins, to bring you, verse 24, Father, I desire that those you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory, that they may share in the love that we share in. What, what a great prayer from Jesus Christ for his people. What a great prayer for Jesus, from Jesus for his people. It's a love for God that drives us out of ourselves and into the lives of other people. And it's a love for others that pushes us out of the doors of this church into the world that needs to hear the gospel. Well, Jesus' prayer is very practical, isn't it? Jesus intends for his work and his word to be proclaimed by his people. Paul tells Timothy to entrust this message to faithful men who will entrust it to others. This is the work of evangelism. Tell others who Christ is and what he's done and then tell them to tell others. It's a great multiplication project of the gospel. And don't miss the essential nature of this task. God sends his church into the world to accomplish that which he intends for us to do. 
It's true that God is sovereign over all things. He's sovereign over salvation, and he's sovereign over election, but he's also sovereign over the means whereby people are saved, isn't he? And he does that through the proclamation of his word. And for this message of reconciliation that we have to carry weight, it must be adorned by unity and purpose within the church and love for God and each other. That we would have love for the Lord who sent his son to save us and for one another, a love for God expressed in worship, and a love for others expressed in Christian charity, in fellowship, in prayer, in counsel, and in evangelism, both from this place to the ends of the earth. That's what our mission is. What's your purpose in the world? To be united in faith and purpose with your brothers and sisters in Christ. To share in the love of God between the Father and the Son. And to go out into the world, even as Jesus was sent, to proclaim reconciliation to those who are lost and perishing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this hour of worship, and we ask that you would encourage our hearts by your word, especially by Christ's prayer for his people. Would you help us, Lord, to be people on a mission, not satisfied with excellence in worship alone, although we love to worship you, not satisfied with deep Christian fellowship and friendships, although that fills our hearts to the brim, and we rejoice that you have given us such friends and fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, but that we would be those who are so overflowing with your love for us in Christ Jesus that we can't help but go out into the world and declare it to others that they may experience the fellowship we have with you through your Son and by your Spirit. In your Son's name we pray. Amen.